Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast. And today I had a great discussion with uh, my colleague, Dr. Lindsay Barrett, who I've been fortunate enough to practice with now for the last couple of years. And we had a conversation about myopia control and, and the decision tree that goes into the different types of, of methods that we can use. We also had a discussion on community-based health, similar to my conversation with Dr. Terry Gossert and how we can help underserved communities or underserved populations within our own communities in ways that allows us to reach out beyond the patients who would already seek their care in our practices. So I had a, a fun time talking to Dr. Lindsay and I hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review and support those who support us. Give everybody kind of a backstory of how you came to optometry, where you went to school, what what kind of things you like to do within the profession. Sure. Um, so I, it actually kind of all started with orthokeratology. Hmm. So I wore, I was fit with orthokeratology when I was about 10 years old. And I was just, I was fascinated with the technology, how it worked, how I was able to see during the day. And from there, I just, I continued to shadow optometrists, the optometrists who fit me in OrthoK, and then my family optometrists who I continued to see following. And I just, I really never thought of any other profession after hmm. that. I was just kind of, I was sold. Did you, so you you actually saw somebody else for your orthokeratology that wasn't your primary care optometrist? I did. We, I kind of switched. Mm -hmm. um, they both kind of followed me with OrthoK, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, Were they in the same throughout. practice? Nope. No. Nope. Really? Mm -hmm. Was it, there a referral that um, linked you to? No, it was just um, transferring to my actual hometown doctor. Okay. Once he was available there, he, you know, my, my hometown is really small. So once he was uh, set up and practicing there, then we, we switched over. Did you, um, did how do you recall how nearsighted you were when you started? Do, can you, you know, now that we have all the evidence to show what, what it can do? You know, I do know, I know my first glasses were a minus one and I didn't start right away. Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think I progressed pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to guess I was a minus two or so. When you started. Minus two. But you know, I always wonder about that history. Yeah. Just where I'm at now versus where I was then. But I don't, I don't know the full story. So, but, but now you're a, what, a four after, four and a half after mile. I am. What's your family history? My mom, my mom's about a minus two. With Sill, mm -hmm. my dad, he's had LASIK, so I'm not sure how yep. nearsighted he was. What's his nerve look like? Does he have some stretching or any tilting? You know, he actually surprisingly doesn't. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's, um, I mean, those things are interesting. I think, you know, just as you and I have talked in the past, I think my experience is that it tends to be a little bit more powerful than, than what the studies suggest it would be just clinically. But, um, but I guess, you know, when you think about orthokeratology, so if we fast forward through school, did you get to do much in school as far as orthokeratology, just maintain your, uh, your level of interest? What, what was that like? You know, I, I didn't get to do a whole lot. We did a, we could, did kind of an extra clinical class and we got to pick what, what route we wanted to go and I did mm -hmm. an ortho-K route. But other than that, I didn't get a lot of exposure I think it was just, you know, at school, you don't always get to pick the patients that you see. So I didn't get a lot of exposure in school um, or as much as I wanted to. And at that point, I was just, you know, you're so focused on on school right. that I wasn't really 
kind of streamlined focused on on just that specialty yeah when, when you know you and i've discussed this before about how when you first come out into practice uh there's sort of not just getting your legs under you and figuring out your bearings but even just when patients are used to having conversations about one thing you know our perspective their perspective of us depending on where we are in practice is that we just do kinetic lenses that you can throw away or glasses mm -hmm. and so kind of explain to me or kind of talk to me about how you build that into your conversation how did you build it into the practice of doing more orthokeratology feeling more comfortable with it those sorts of things sure well i i do think that the education piece to patients and parents was the hardest thing for me i had a hard time you know simplifying it to the point where parents and patients can understand but not too much where because it, it is a complex it's a complex thing to, to discuss that they would understand what we were trying to do and why the big why of why we were trying to do it so for me you know it's not going to go over when you talk about peripheral defocus with a parent mm -hmm. and that's kind of where i tried to start mm -hmm. and it was it was a process for me to try to learn exactly how to educate those parents and patients on on what what first of all what myopia is and why we care about it um you know and so basically just saying in the past we used to we just said hey your, your prescription increased this year again here's a new prescription for glasses or, or single vision contacts and we'll see you next year it's probably gonna keep changing yeah and you know now that we we don't really have to say that or do that anymore we can say well now we have further treatment options we can slow this down and kind of explain those reasons why the increased risks of of those eye diseases that we're worried about following as they get older mm -hmm. do you um so when you when you have that conversation i think one of the things can when you ever whenever you add something new to your practice one of the challenging things is that not everybody is going to listen to what your recommendations are or you think that if they don't listen to you right away, it can be deflating or defeating, even though you know, based on the evidence and based on, on your research and, and the conviction that you have about the importance of that, it can be deflating to, to feel like, well, that person, that kid really needs it, but the parents don't want it. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about that as a, as a new practitioner? How do you manage that? What, what are your thoughts on how can people, whether a new practitioner or an established practitioner, how can you kind of understand that that's going to happen at mm -hmm. least to some degree and then the tide turns differently yeah um no you're right you're exactly right it can be a little bit defeating you know and i think it can be both on the practitioner side of how they educate the parent but also on this is it's a just a new area parents don't really understand what it is and it, it can take some time for them to wrap their minds around it mm -hmm. um so it's not surprising when i don't see that patient and that parent back right away for any kind of myopia control fitting or consultation. But, um, you know, we've talked about this before, kind of the more touch points we have mm -hmm. on the topic with the parent and the patient, then the more they're like, they start to understand the importance of it. They did, um, I did the the Brian Holden course, mm -hmm. kind of their last course. And the one of the interesting takeaways I took from that is they looked at this study and this study basically said that about half of parents who knew about myopia and, and what myopia does, only about half of them mm -hmm. thought that it was actually a real risk to their child. Mm -hmm. So we're still, I mean, there's still just a lot of education to be done. 
um, and it's it's being done. It's yeah. just it's just gonna take a little while to get there and, and to fully educate everyone. But once we educate one parent, then it can be kind of like a you know a snowball effect where then more will will understand and and you know word of mouth stuff. Yeah, I wonder what the percentage is of optometrists and ophthalmologists that think it's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, it, it, it or. And then one, that's a problem. And then two, that's a problem that's worth solving in this way. Right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any data on that. Did they talk about that at all in, in like the vision no, by design or? I didn't see that data either, but you're right. I mean, the, the first step, if you're even thinking about myopia control in your office, you have to, you have to believe in it first of all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely true is that you can think. You know, at the one hand, and there was a student that I was talking to. This was years ago when I was um, when I was giving a presentation at ICO, and so we orthokeratology had come up just in our conversations afterwards. And I said, "Well, you know, it it um, I'm not sure how you know, it was just at the beginning of some some of the evidence coming out. It was probably, I mean, really probably 2012, 2013, and." he said, I mean, it was really a great point that he made. He said, well, so I said, well, maybe, you know, it slows things down and, and, but I don't know how, how um, much evidence is really out there for that. There's a little bit, that's kind of my conversation with patients. And he said, well, he flipped it in my mind and it really changed it. He said, well, what, based on what you know now, based on the evidence, you can tell parents, this is a great way to correct your vision. And it probably will also slow down the progression of nearsightedness. And so instead of focusing on that, you mm-hmm. know, in 2012, 2013, as the primary goal, it was actually sort of like a secondary benefit. And now we're seeing as the evidence goes on is that, well, we have really good ways to just make people see clearly. Sure. But um, but the primary goal then of, let's say, orthokeratology, for example, is that you really can make them see clearly after you also slow it down. Mm-hmm. What's your your decision tree on whether or not you use atropine or dual focus uh, contact lenses or uh, overnight orthokeratology lenses? You know, it can be mostly just patient dependent. So mm-hmm. depending on how much how much astigmatism they have, depending on their motivation for a contact lens wear yet, um, that comes up quite a bit because it's typically those younger kids that we're seeing um, starting out being myopic. Um, you know, the other thing too is kind of the evidence of how effective is orthokeratology at, at those lower powers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of where I start. Um, and then it, it just kind of depends. It, it's also that decision is driven by the parent and the patient. Yep. So we kind of make that decision together, discuss all the options, make the decision together on how successful do I think the patient's going to be in, in each, each individual option. Versus what is the patient ready for? Is the patient ready for a contact, a contact lens option? Uh, how motivated are they? Are they ready for that responsibility? And how does the parent feel about that responsibility on the on their child? So talk about the, you mentioned the, um, kind of talk about why lower powers in orthokeratology are not going to be as effective as maybe some other options when you have a patient that's, so what's, first of all, what's that number that you think these powers may not be as effective, and then why is that the case? You know, I think the studies are saying a, about a minus one and below, mainly because 
we're not getting as much of that peripheral change mm -hmm. with how that orthocalins is fitting. Mm -hmm. um, we've done it before, and so it'll be interesting to see how those patients go, yeah. you know, how they change over time. But um, that's kind of where the studies are showing us. So, you know, it, it's hard to know. Would they be better off in that dual focus lens first? Yeah. Do you think that um, when you think about the dual focus lens, what is the patient's response to, I mean, is it predictable where you have some patients that don't mind that defocus or that secondary image or that secondary focus blur mm -hmm. or uh, or it just sort of seems random. What's your thoughts about how you can how you can use that lens or be predictive on who's going to accept it and who's not going to accept the blur? Yeah, I feel like anecdotally for me, it's been it's been more challenging to fit more of like a teenager or a patient who's already been in a single mm -hmm. vision mm -hmm. contact lens to then s switch them into that dual focus lens. Mm -hmm. They are really bothered by that blur and that glare. Um, but on the other hand, I've had great success if it's the patient's first contact lens. Yeah. They don't know any better and they feel like they see really, really well. Yeah. And then we're getting that treatment. So yeah. that's been my experience. Um, I think, you know, I've heard through, you know, other colleagues, they feel like they, their patients do okay if you refit them into a, a dual focus lens. But. From a single vision lens. Mm -hmm. How much sill do you think you can tolerate with, with that type of lens? Like how much sill have you been, when you say, I, I think we would want to do, if we're going to do a, con a daytime contact lens, mm -hmm. where we'd want to use something else that um, may also account for the, the um, toricity or the cylinder mm -hmm. component. I'd probably say anywhere between three quarters and one. Yeah. So same like what you would think of with a yeah. presbyo. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, so talk about your decision, the companies that you're using for um, for atropine compounding, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. what, how, how is that working for you? You know, there's a couple options that we have right now for uh, atropine. You know, first of all, what I would say is if you're, going to be getting into this kind of specialty of, of optometry, just be a sponge, soak it all in. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information out there right now. Just one, just getting the fundamentals and the basics of, of why the risks of progression, what now, what treatments we can use. And then kind of in, in addition to that, what companies you can mm -hmm. use. So just be a sponge. There are tons of options and I was, I had no idea how many different options we had as far as ortho K lenses until I went yeah. to vision by design. Yeah. There are, there are a lot and it can be overwhelming to know what you need to use. And, um, and for me, what I've done is I've just tried to get really comfortable with one company before I switch over and try something a little bit more advanced. Um, as far as atropine for us, there's been, um, a really good local pharmacy we've been able to use compounding pharmacy. We've been able to use and and the benefit with with their uh, pharmacy is that we can get any percent we want. So if we if we need to kind of gradually step the patient up, then that would be kind of our go to as far as getting something really specific of percent. Mm -hmm. um, but there's some really good online pharmacies that we've been able to use as well, um, like OSRX mm -hmm. or Impermis. Mm -hmm. The Impermis, I believe they might only have the 0.01%. Mm -hmm. Last time I checked, that's the case. So if, if you're, you know, if you're looking at the LAMP study and, and you're not following the 0.01% any longer, then, you know, that one is really out. But the um, the OSRX pharmacy, they provide uh, three different concentrations. Mm -hmm. 
So then the when you're starting patients anymore, you and I have had these conversations that you're no longer starting at 0.01%. You're starting right away with 0.025. You think the I LAMP am. study is strong enough for that? You know, it, it's hard to know because you're right. It's only been, they've only have a certain amount of years of study. Mm -hmm. They haven't looked at the rebound and, and that sort of thing yet. But the LAMP study is telling us that it, the 0.01% isn't helping the axial length mm -hmm. change. So... Yeah, and if that's really what you're trying to slow down mm -hmm. with all those secondary problems, then if you're not getting axial length um, retardation, then you're you're not gonna you're still gonna have problems even if even if for some reason, which would be weird, that you're halting myopia progression from a prescription standpoint. If the it wouldn't make sense then that the eye is still getting longer right. and you're still actually doing that or in fact doing that. So the interesting part you know in terms of the underlying theories of it when you look at lamp you know one of the the things that people would say at least with higher dose atropine is that well it's the accommodative effect it's the fact that you're not getting accommodation that's going to stimulate um that's going to stimulate axial elongation but what the lamp does is it shows you that essentially i can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head but essentially the amplitude of accommodation is pretty much stable once you get from um, 0 0.05 to 0.01%. I believe that's that's the case. Um, and so that would really tell you that it, it, it's not as driven by accommodative because you're not knocking out, you're not losing. I, I guess my point is, is I think the accommodative loss from those percentages were really pretty, pretty similar. And um, and so there's got to be some other mechanism. What when you're at Vision by Design, when you're taking the Brian Holden course, what what's the proposed mechanism there? Does anybody have any idea? As far as atropine, yeah, you know they they're wondering it's if it is it acting on the sclera. Um, no, no great solid no, like here's really what we think no. is going on. And there's still a lot of research needed to be done with atropine because the other question that no one really knows is. Can we just can we just stop it cold turkey? Right, right. Do we need to taper it? That that's really the question everyone wanted to know, and and we really, really I don't we don't have the research yet. Yeah. So there's there's still some things that are be, are being looked at. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the you know that's the um, that's the hardest part I think for optometrists and other other doctors is to say I'm going to prescribe a medication. I think that's why they're shy. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's pretty well accepted on why the dual focus and an or overnight orthokeratology lens why that works. Um, but for some reason, and I get it, that if you don't entirely know why it works or the underlying mechanism of why atropine works, then it does make you a little not because it doesn't work, but just because you can't understand that mm -hmm. mechanism. Um, that is going to be a challenge long term for especially a profession, well, any profession to use that medication, but especially optometry who is under a microscope from ophthalmology. Um, even though ophthalmology uses that, I think that that does put people at more of a, a hesitancy to use that medication. Mm -hmm. And um, well, how do you think? So um, your kid, let's say it's your kid and, you know, they're not ready for contacts. Um what do you think about about atropine for your child? What age are you worried about side effects? Are you, you know, those sorts of things? You know, I know there's um, 
for me, I'm not really concerned about side effects, but I know there's lots of kind of experts in the field who are. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, long-term side effects down the road and, you know, later in life. Will taking that medication daily have any effect? Um, Really, the percent and the dose is really, really small, but you're right. I think probably those contact lens options are more of my number one recommendations. not saying that atropine's not a great option, but yeah. it's just different than the other two. Yeah. Different things to think about, um, different things to measure, observe for side effects. Yeah. I would say that, you know, as far as my kids are concerned, I would say I would it would make sense to me to try to bridge the gap between when they can they they need some intervention mm-hmm. and when they can you wear a contact lens. So if for some reason I don't trust them to to be able to wear it appropriately or for whatever other reason, then it would seem that, okay, a year or two of atropine at a very low dose is probably not going to be an issue, especially since we have a lot of studies, you know, all, you know, all, think about all the amblyopia treatment studies that looked at higher doses of atropine, 1% for a, a lot longer. And, you know, those studies were done years and years ago. I think some of them were done almost 10 years ago or more. And so the yeah, well, more than 10 years ago. And so we have evidence on, you know, the safety even at that level for at least a few years at that level of atropine. So um, so I would say that even if it's only a couple years at, you know, a fraction of the dose, mm-hmm. it's probably not that big of an issue. Where I would, I, like you, is, you know, you start a six-year-old kid and they're on atropine until they're 18 or 20. Right what's going to happen. You know, we don't know. And, and I don't know that we're going to have a study that's going to tell us that mm. in particular. Um, well, then, you know, you have some other passions. I don't know if you got to listen to um, Terry Gossert's conversation mm-hmm. with me, but kind of talk about what your um, what you'd like to see happen, kind of the other stuff that you like to do in terms of donating your time and trying to develop underserved areas. Um, yeah. So, uh, just recently this year took over our Vosh chapter for Nebraska, uh, from Dr. Ellen Weiss. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, an awesome learning experience. The goal that we have for kind of the upcoming year is to create more of a domestic clinic. So we do have, um, Ellen, she organizes trips to the Dominican Republic every year. So we have kind of our international mission, but if we can, help those in our own community that's Mm -hmm. kind of our goal for this upcoming year so right now we're working with the heart ministry clinic or center in downtown omaha to create a clinic for for really their their population that they serve so right now they have a food bank they also have uh, dental students come in from the creighton dental school and then they also have some nurse practitioners come in from creighton as well Mm -hmm. and they want to add that vision component which is which would be really, really cool if we can get it up and going. So currently right now we're, we're working on just uh, gathering equipment, mm-hmm. trying to piece together our exam lane and kind of see how we can serve patients from there. What did you think about, um, is this a community health center? Would it, do you think it would qualify for what Terry was talking about? You know, I was curious about that. Yeah. Um, I feel like I would need to speak with their director over there yeah. and see um we're you know we're able to get funds through them as well because it's it's a service that they're wanting to provide but you know it's kind of a group effort so it's it's the heart ministry center it's vosh nebraska and it's also lions clubs in the area that are all kind of working together to get this clinic up and going mm-hmm. in our community what's the so you think from now you think it's a six-month 
time frame, 12 month time frame? You know, they're right now they're they're building some new facilities over there so we can have more actually have space for vision. Um, and I think they're proposed last time to be finished in around March time frame. So, you know, we have four or five months for us to get everything kind of organized and ready to go. I'm not sure if they're still on track for kind of their build out, but mm-hmm. um, that would be the goal. Mm-hmm. So. And then when you think of like um, hardships or things that have been hurdles that have been, you know, unexpected or expected that have been kind of the the most challenging thing for you to try to work through, what have those been? You know, I think it's more just there are the reason why kind of all of us are coming together is that, you know, originally the Lions Clubs were trying to do it on their own, but Mm -hmm. they they didn't really know where they could get resources. They didn't have the resources. And, you know, I'm both a Lion and in in Vosh. And so I'm able to see all these opportunities that I have with Vosh. Mm -hmm. And so we can bring kind of multiple opportunities and, and people's ideas and, um, you know, equipment and and things that we need for this clinic, we can bring everyone together to kind of work on it together, then that's that's the best. Can you, so can you tell me the why behind when, because I I vaguely know about the Lions, like really what their purpose is and and I should know more. I know at one time I did know more, but uh, where do they get their, their passion for vision from? And um, and then kind of what's the background of a lot of the people that are, are kind of driving the Lions Club? Yeah, so um, the whole the whole mission of Lions Club is we serve. And so they originally started out as, um, actually Helen Keller was kind of influential in when the Lions Clubs got started. But um, so they really started out kind of in the vision realm, mm-hmm. but they've they've expanded. I mean, they do hearing, they do um, diabetes. They do pediatric care. I mean, there's there's lot. They have lots of different avenues that they mm-hmm. like to help other people. But kind of first and foremost, they've they've started out with vision. Mm-hmm. So you know, they've helped with the eye banks. Um, gathering glasses is probably what most people may have seen or yep. heard of. And then just essentially doing volunteer service around those areas but also doing fundraisers around those areas to to donate funds for for people in need yeah yeah the so then but most of them are just people just anybody that mm-hmm. thinks it's in a good cause to help out something else Definitely. and so what has been your in general um, what's your experience as being a professional who understands the eyes deeply understands the eyes mm-hmm. and um, and then coming into a group like that, that maybe advocates heavily on screening measures that, uh, I mean, what, what's been your experience with that? Yeah. So actually just, um, you know, just last weekend I was asked to help with a screening and, and I wasn't sure how much help I would be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we go in, they, they utilize a, a screening camera. We also took some, uh, eye care measurements on patients, but really those, those eye screenings, they don't tell us a whole lot. They tell us a little bit about prescription. They don't really tell us much about disease. And especially we were last weekend, we were screening for, um, we were at like an aging center. Mm-hmm. So we were screening an older population. And, and so it's harder in those populations for any of that to be of value. Right. 
So my kind of my purpose on that was one to take the eye care measurements, but two just just to chat with them. Right. Have you had an annual eye exam? Do you have a pre- provider? Do you need help finding a provider? Do you have questions about insurance that I might be able to help? Um, a lot of honestly, a lot of the a lot of the people that we screened and saw were already already had mm-hmm. a primary eye care provider. A lot of them already had an eye disease that they knew of taking glaucoma medications, they had cataract surgery, one had, you know, history of retinal detachment, they knew their family history. So they they know and they already had care established. It was just another touch point to say, yeah. keep doing that. Yeah. And then, you know, the 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 common thing that we see, again, it's not specifically for the Lions Club, but from an SGRC standpoint, we'll see entities similar that really advocate for screenings. Mm-hmm. And then it's it is intuitive to think, well, you know, like you said, it's not really going to do that much good to take a photo screening of a 80 year old patient. Um, there's a lot more, probably even more rapid assessments that you could make of those patients, mm-hmm. uh, and be much more effective if you wanted, if you were just concerned about prescription. But the, um, there are these groups that just are advocating for screening, 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 and, um, and the the gut reaction is to to be almost against them, right? Opposed to them because mm-hmm. because we know that screening one thing is is missing all these other things, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll be okay for catching this, you know, myopia, for example, but we're gonna miss all the hyperopes, all the binocular vision issues, all the mm-hmm. you know. And so um so but then the other side of it is being on the inside of, you know, you can change the understanding of that with time, but it's hard because some of these people have been advocating for screenings for, they've been probably in Lions Club or other clubs for, I mean, years, 20, Mm -hmm. 30 years. So what's been your, what's your thoughts on how effective that you're, uh, you're changing that perspective or how long it's going to take, or, you know, what kinds of touch points have you had to be able to kind of educate beyond just what they're advocating for and from a screening standpoint. Sure. So, you know, I think they're mainly using their cameras on the younger population. Um, This was just kind of an unusual event that Mm -hmm. we were asked to be at, but they know, they know it's a, they know it's a screening and they know the importance of comprehensive eye exams. Mm -hmm. So um, I think they just know that they're, it's again, it's another touch point. They can get out in the community and then be able to educate parents and patients on how important it is to get their comprehensive eye exams and this is kind of the first step like hey we did you know we did this screening and and you did flag but even if you didn't flag and you haven't had a comprehensive eye exam good it's important to, yeah it's important to have that so yeah. they know that um you know i i think lions feel like they're limited because they're not in our profession um but this is their way of, of stepping in and, and helping yeah Okay, so then I want to be respectful of your time. The in terms of if we kind of jump back and say, you know, your transition from student to doctor into practice, um, what what do you think is kind of uh, what was things that you weren't expecting, um, things that you thought were um, unique challenges? I mean, kind of anything that kind of comes to mind that for the younger for the students that are listening. Um, or for the docs that are wanting to hire them, that you can kind of impart uh, as you know experiences or ideas that you had. Sure. Um, well, first of all, when you're 
on your own, it's a little bit different than not having someone always kind of look over your shoulder and, and double check things. So that was, you know, just coming out of optometry school was kind of the first, you know, kind of interesting hurdle to go through. But I think it's more just gaining your clinical confidence and, um, you know, just, just being confident in what you're seeing. Being kind to that patient is probably the, the number one thing. Listening to the patient is the number one thing. Um, you know, listening to their complaint, figuring out their complaint and helping them treat their complaint is mm-hmm. probably, you know, one of the things that I really try to do. Mm-hmm. Then it helps them feel like they came in for, for the right reasons and, and got answers to their questions. But in addition, finding those things that they weren't aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Lindsay, thanks a lot for being on. And um, I know we'll chat soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome.